Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Welcome to LawPod's Criminology podcast series. I'm Gillian McNall, one of the co-producers, and today we have Dr. Phil Scrayton, Professor Emeritus from the School of Law, Queen's University, Belfast. And Phil is known for his decades of critical research. Um, Most recently, his groundbreaking work on the Hillsborough disaster. And today, though, we're going to be talking about his work on prisons and on prison abolition. And so, Phil, do you want to tell us a bit, first of all, about how you got involved in prison research? I just finished my degree, Gillian, and I was doing some part-time teaching and somebody said to me there was an opportunity to do some work in the prison. Uh, Walton Prison, as it was called then, it's now called HMP Liverpool. And so I agreed to do it and I rocked up at the prison in my... uh, collarless shirt, waistcoat, shades, long hair tied back and um, didn't go down very well with the prison officers who met me and they kept me waiting and eventually I went through the prison. I was completely gobsmacked. I'd never been in a prison, let alone a Victorian prison before. Just the smell, the noise, the din and the clear antagonism from the prison officers towards me because I was going to be doing something with prisoners. Mm. And when I got inside, I asked the guys, uh, where, where is everybody? And they said, oh, they didn't unlock this person, they didn't unlock that person. And I said, why? And they said, oh, that's what they do. Mm. If they don't want to unlock somebody, they don't do it. It's completely at their discretion. And that was my baptism of going inside a prison. And I think... It really opened my eyes, and for somebody who'd been doing sociology and politics at university, I realised that I was walking past this prison every day in Liverpool, and I didn't know what was going on on the other side of the wall. And given my interest in criminology, and particularly critical work in criminology, I felt that I had a kind of obligation to go back. So not just doing that course, but I went back regularly on visits to see different prisoners, and became immersed in the whole prison issue. And that was just at the time that uh, Joe Sim and Mike Fitzgerald were writing uh, their research up on the crisis in prisons. And also it was at the time that Mike Fitzgerald had written the uh, incredible book on prisoners in revolt. And that was on the uprisings in prisons. So it was a matter of personal intrigue Mm -hmm. but also professional responsibility I thought Mm -hmm. if I'm going to be any sort of a critical criminologist I need to and have a duty to understand what's going on behind the walls because it's going on in our name. Yeah absolutely and I think that as a critical criminologist once you go into the prison setting you can't fail but be moved by what you witness 
And I think you're right. We have this obligation to talk about the harms that exist behind the prison walls. I suppose it might be worthwhile before we move on to talk a bit about what the purpose of prison is supposed to be in society, um, what the what the purpose of incarceration is perceived to be. What do you think? Well, I mean, I think that the classical issue is, and we all know it in popular discourse and the way we talk to each other, the punishment must fit the crime. What that means is that if you commit a crime, there you have a debt to repay, and the debt that you repay is to wider society. And the way you repay that is by having uh, the time that you have in society removed from you uh, by being put in prison. And that is in some way seen as the repayment of debt. But there are classical uh, classical explanations for prison. First of all, incapacitation. The idea that you take somebody who is a danger to others or has committed various offences off the streets and therefore you incapacitate them. Um, you prevent them from uh, being able to commit that crime again. Of course, the ultimate form of incapacitation historically has been, and we see it now in the United States, is the death penalty. You completely incapacitate somebody. You say you can never commit this crime again because we take your life. Uh, the second issue is is retribution, that somehow you're paying back, that um, you are paying a debt. You've, incur you've, incur you've incurred that debt because of the crime you've committed. Um, and therefore, that repayment uh, is part of retribution, those two things together. So it's called retributive justice, you know, that you, um, your society has the right to take out on you what you've taken out on society. The third element is that in some way there is restitution being paid, therefore, to the victim. And those are the, if you like strong warnings, strong um, forms of policing that are directed towards those people who, it is assumed, are making choices to commit crime. The final element is reform of the offender, that historically prisons were often just for incapacitation uh, and nothing more. And that repayment of, if you like, that re repayment of debt through retribution but it soon became clear that people were being released back into society in a worse state than when they went in. So the penal reform movement was actually about emphasising that while you're in prison receiving, as Ignatiev called it, a just measure of pain calibrated to the crime that you'd committed, that the work should be done while you're in prison um, to reform you, the individual. And so reformism became the most crucial element uh, of, if you like, humane containment. It wasn't just about holding people in conditions that were bearable. It was also that they should leave prison in a better state than they entered. Mm -hmm. And of course, this has been the most dramatic failure of prisons of all. That claim has never been uh, realized. And we can see that very, very easily by what we call the revolving door of the prison, that people come back into prison uh, regularly. Uh, it's that whole process of multiple and worsening mm. um, crimes committed by that individual in society. Mm. 
that demonstrates that prisons are not getting to the heart of the issues mm -hmm. uh, that create the dynamic in the first place through which people commit those offences. Absolutely. And in a way, the use of those justifications of punishment serves to legitimise the use of prison to respond to this whole yeah. sort of host of other issues. As Angela Davis says, prisons do not disappear social problems. They disappear human beings. And so you see the prison use for homelessness, unemployment, drug addiction, mental illness, illiteracy, which she says are just a few of the problems that disappear from the public view when the human beings contending with them are relegated to cages. So we have this big issue of prison being used to respond to other social problems. What do you think are some of the other core problems with the prison institution? Well, I mean, I think that, I mean, Angela Davis's work is, is really significant because while on the one hand she is arguing that we need to humanise containment, we need to humanise conditions, that they are not a solution in any way, shape or form to the issues that people in wider society face. And of course, the humane containment argument is about getting people off the streets. It's not about dealing with the problems that they face in wider society that create the dynamics of crime. And I think that one of the points here is how society, how society criminalizes, how we criminalize certain acts. It's no coincidence that the majority of people who end up in prison are poor, uh, they're on the margins of society, uh, they're involved particularly these days in the issue of drugs, and in that they have drug dependencies. They're living lives that are really at the margin. And we have to remember approximately a third of our children grow up in poverty. So if that is the case, it should be no surprise that as people get older and try to make their way through society in different ways, they either create some form of dependency, alcohol, drugs, whatever, uh, and often that is associated with or alongside being involved in a range of acquisitive crime, criminal behaviour. But also they are suffering. They're, they're on the margins. They are not able to make the kind of judgments that we would expect people to make in everyday life who are feeling at least that they are putting food on the table and they are, in, in fact, making a, a real contribution to their families and to the, the, the life they leave. The, the problem is that as we then put people in these forms of containment, i.e. prisons, uh, and those prisons are, are, are not suitable for either for rehabilitation or for decent living, uh, we can see that putting more and more people into prison creates what's been called a prison crisis. Now, the word prison cri pr words prison crisis have been around for quite a long time. We saw there was supposed to be a crisis in prisons in the 1960s and previous to that even in the 1950s. We've more than doubled the prison population. We haven't developed a penal estate. We still have Victorian prisons or prisons that were built as temporary accommodations such as in the north of Ireland at McGilligan and parts of McGabbery. They were built as temporary accommodations, now being permanent accommodations. They're not appropriate for humane living. Um, and so what we can see is the increasing numbers going into prison uh, created this notion of a crisis. But a crisis is in an illness, is that you are ill and your illness gets to a pitch 
and you go through the crisis. Well, you can't have a crisis that lasts 50 years. And so what we're talking about is long-term malaise. This is a, a, a sickness that is at the heart of our society and the way in which we deal with people. And we've even gone beyond that now, but particularly in the United States where um, a range of authors have demonstrated absolutely clearly that what we've moved to, Christian Parenti was the first person to, to, to highlight this, that we warehouse people. Mm. I mean, that concept of warehousing, to me, says it all. What do we put in warehouses? Objects mm. in boxes. And that's exactly what we do in terms of prisons. This leads me to probably the most significant contradiction that exists within the way we inspect our prisons. We inspect prisons in um, the UK and the north of Ireland uh, through what is called uh, a model from the World Health Organization of the healthy prison. The healthy prison means that uh, the conditions are decent, um, the prisoners are held in safe conditions, they are engaged in purposeful activity, these are their words, not mine, and that they are being prepared for resettlement. So decency, safety, purposeful activity, and resettlement. I would argue that this notion of a healthy prison is an oxymoron, that um, the prisons in no way hold people in decent conditions, they certainly don't feel safe. Almost every single prison report that has come out from the inspectorates, both in, um, in England and Wales and here in the north of Ireland, uh, have stated very clearly that prisons, the majority of prisoners in prisons don't feel safe. Uh, purposeful activity... We can see that over half of our prisoners are not unlocked during the day because there is no purposeful activity, there is no work for them. Therefore, the important work on resettlement, that people are going back into the community in a better state and better able to cope than they were when they came in, that final objective isn't, isn't realised. So whilst we have this idea of... Um, humane containment and nothing more, nothing less. The idea that we are reforming the individual, that we're sending a person back into society in a better state and condition to deal with their lives than when they came in is a lie. Yeah. And I think the prison lie is really a major issue that we have to confront, especially at a time when politicians, uh, at the moment, politicians are calling for longer sentences, more people in prison, uh, and less work with prison with people who um, are struggling in the community, less work in the community to support them and help them. And I think that you know, all of this is emphasised by the fact that we have a low age of criminal responsibility, one of the lowest in the world, in the certainly in the democratic world, at one end of the spectrum, so we have children in prison. At the other end of the spectrum, we have something we've never confronted before, which is an aging population, people growing old in prison because they're serving long sentences. So if you're in your 40s or 50s and you get a 30-year sentence, you're going to be going into your old age in prison. Now, that relationship between one end of the spectrum, very young people, the other end of the spectrum, much older people, are a part of that dynamic, dynamic before we even move into the issues around the specificities of gender, mm -hmm. 
um, not just the issues of men and women in relation to each other or how they are housed differently or how they serve their time, and we can, we can talk about that, but also the growing issue of race and racism within prisons mm-hmm. when we have over 20% of people incarcerated in the UK coming from what would be classed as ethnic minority backgrounds. So all of these issues are complex. They're complex enough in wider society, but when we put them into uh, the bricks and mortar of a prison, then they become a, 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 a dynamic uh, problem in micro. You know, it's, 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 a, a, it's, it's a, if, if you like, it's a, a reflection of the world in which we live, but it's in micro. It's in that one environment behind those walls that we walk past every day. And of course, we both know from our experience going into prisons um, that what people experience once they get in there are the pains and harms of imprisonment. Um, We've seen escalating rates of violence, self-harm and suicide across prison estates over recent years. And yet... As you touched upon, this month we've seen an announcement from the leader of the Conservative Party, Boris Johnson, about this new law and order push with the opening up of 10,000 more prison spaces. Could you outline some of the issues with, with that? Well, I mean, at a moment when all of the research of any merit, all of the work that's been done by criminologists across the range, whether they are uh, administrative criminologists or they're critical criminologists, demonstrate very clearly that um, the prisons are not fit for purpose, that the prison um, regimes are not appropriate, that they are failing dramatically. And there is alternative evidence, particularly from Scandinavian um, countries, societies, states, uh, that alternative uh, alternatives to prison do work. At that very moment, what does a right-wing vote-catching government look towards? It looks towards the hang them, whip them, flog them uh, concept of punitivity. And it doesn't surprise me that that's been stated. It doesn't surprise me that it's probably a pre-election vote catcher as it is thought but it flies in the face of everything that has been said by their own civil servants uh, by their own inspectorates we've just had consecutive reports on uh, two prisons well three prisons um, one in london uh, but two manchester and liverpool that have outright outrightly condemned the conditions of those victorian prisons and have stated quite clearly that rat infested health um, compromising places that are a throwback to um to a time when we locked people away and threw away the key at the very time when that is all being exposed by an inspectorate that is not a radical inspectorate at all, and by prison visitors and by independent monitoring boards, at the very time that that happens, we have a government committing itself to 10,000 more prison places. Mm-hmm. Now, the only way in which that can occur is a massive building program, what's called the Titan Prisons. And there are two to be developed, uh, one in Wales and one in England. Um, 
in uh, and that they were already on the cards so they would need more of that kind of accommodation this would go to an american model of holding up to two to three thousand people on one site of um basically as i said before warehousing but no thought that these prisons would be there for anything other than retribution. They could not possibly be there in order to um, in order to help people with the complex issues that they face in their lives. So it's a it, it's a, a politics of ignorance. It's a politics of aggression, and it is this incredibly naive belief that you can somehow deal with complex problems in your society by taking a big stick. Um, people who are facing the kinds of um, economic hardships, social compromise, lack of local authority investment, uh, lack of opportunity to have proper full-time permanent jobs. I don't buy this idea we, are a net, we, we now have almost full employment. If the criterion for that is Amazon and working, you know, um, on fixed hours contracts or whatever is available. We are not in a period of full employment as we know it. Uh, poverty has increased. Um, we've seen a massive increase in food banks, children being fed at school, um, the compromise of, of schooling in, in working class areas. All of these issues, as we know historically, add up to real dislocation in communities. Real dislocation in communities undoubtedly and always bring about people on the margin either having drug, alcohol problems. Mm. Each of those are fed by poverty. Mm. And that downward spiral, at the bottom of that downward spiral, are the prison gates. And if we think that we can imprison our way out of crisis that is political and economic, we've got another thing coming. And I worry very much in terms of what the future holds when a prime minister uh, believes that the kinds of complex issues that we see in our inner cities can be resolved by having another 10,000 prison places and the investment that that, that that means. The final thing I want to say on that is that for every prison place, and they are expensive, we're talking about well over, um, you know, well, well over £100,000 a year to keep somebody in that kind of accommodation. It's happening at the same time as all of the community-based services are being strapped for cash. So where is the investment in youth service? Where is the investment in poor relief? Where is the investment in those communities, in proper community services that will offer alternatives to prison? Where is the alternative dialogue around community-based justice? We can see in Scotland the tremendous work that has been done in drugs rehab programs in the inner city. They are now closing. And, you know, the fact that you close those drug rehab programs, which are working, which are, you know, the evidence is absolutely clear for all the academic research supports the claims made by the programs, that those programs are working. And yet we take them away. People go back on the street. They have nothing. 
they get involved again in drugs, they steal to gain drugs, and they end up in prison. I mean, it's the logic of the lowest common denominator. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you really hit the nail on the head when you talk about this as being an act of aggression, because it's an ideological choice to respond to the outcomes of all of their social policy decisions with the criminal justice arm of the state and not with social welfare parts of governance. So we want to talk about prison abolition today and about the concept of prison abolition. So as critical criminologists, what is it that we put forward to respond to these harms that we see in society through the criminalisation of people and the use of prison to respond to social issues? Well, I, I think it's a really important question and I've touched on it. It's the fact that we have to think about how we can resolve often complex problems within communities, in communities. In other words, to think we can, to use a phrase that's been used so many times before, we can imprison our way out of a welfare crisis is a nonsense. I think that what is absolutely essential is what Angela Davis calls a suite of alternatives. Mm -hmm. And she's been banging that drum since she wrote that phrase in 2003. And what that suite of alternatives looks like is appropriate and proper housing. It's uh, opportunities for, um, in, in terms of uh, self-belief, in terms of self-confidence within communities. It's the knowledge that um, you can uh, get access to work, you can have access to education, get access to work, that there is belief in, there is belief in what you have as an individual to offer to the society in which you live. In other words, it's about the removal of alienation. However, that can't be done overnight, and poverty is going to be with us for a very long period of time. It's never not been there, and I don't see any, any, any hope in, in it diminishing. So if we're talking about the dislocation that comes from poverty, the dislocation in a highly acquisitive society that comes from feeling alienated from being able to participate in that society, then what is absolutely essential is to look at ways in which when people overstep the mark, when people do get into drugs, when people do have alcohol dependency, when people um, become involved in small-scale levels of violence, um, when, they, when they rob from each other often within communities, in other words, when they become predatory. These are complex problems. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want my house robbed either, mm -hmm. you know. So these are complex problems. But if we think that we can resolve them by a big stick. We've got another thing coming. What we actually have to do is invest in those communities. If we can't, in the short term, invest in jobs, if we can't create opportunities, and I understand that in an, in, in an economy that is increasingly reliant on mechanization and less reliant on labor, mm -hmm. that therefore we have to recalibrate the way society operates. I understand all of that. And I understand that welfare is part of that support. But it has to be welfare that keeps people's heads above water, that doesn't make them feel that they are truly marginal and worthless. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, and, and there are complex issues there, and in doing that, and in that transition period of trying to establish a real alternative way of being in those communities... 
people will commit crime, mm-hmm. as, we, as we know. And in that situation, people will be violent. People will be drunk. People mm-hmm. will have alcohol and drug dependency. Mm-hmm. So how do we deal with that? How we deal with that is by making those communities strong. And we make those communities strong not only by giving them hope, but also by putting into those communities the necessary accommodation for those problems. Mm -hmm. In other words, we need proper drugs rehabilitation within communities. We need proper alcohol uh, rehabilitation within communities. We need to have in that in 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 those communities community-based support. Mm-hmm. For years, I was chair of uh, Include Youth, and Include Youth in the north of Ireland has done remarkable work with young people. And I would argue very strongly from the evidence that of of, the, of that long period of time. I would argue, have kept many young people in this society out of prison. Mm -hmm. And they've done that by by giving those young people hope, by giving them self-belief, by supporting them every every step of the way to participate meaningfully in the society in which they live. Mm -hmm. They've not condemned them when they've used drugs. They've not condemned them when they've been blocked over a weekend on alcohol. What they've done is they've picked up the pieces of that and helped those young people see that there is another way. Often those young people are destitute. They're out of their houses. And that is the process that is important. Not the the way that works is that organizations like Include Youth always strapped for cash, always wondering whether they're going to be able to retain their workforce. That, to me, is outrageous mm-hmm. that you can see a program that works so well. And there are many other organizations like that, Extern and mm-hmm. others, you know, that, that work in that way. That's where the investment should be. We talk about justice reinvestment. Yeah. What justice reinvestment means is you take that big budget that we use to criminalize and keep people in prison and we trim it right back into work in the community and that work is hard, that work is tough, and it, it requires appropriate people to conduct it and carry it forward. Mm-hmm. But that is where we see the beginnings of the creation of decarceration in the first instance. We send less people to prison, we invest more in communities, and in that situation we hold communities together, we create real restitution for the community, but also reform of the individual. It's not reform, it's helping people to have the, the tools, if you like, to deal with the problems that they face mm-hmm. that, that, that are around them. And I look at that as, as somebody who is now a well-established academic. I look at that and I see myself. I look back to that, that crossroads that I was at yeah. when I was 19, 20, and many of my friends took the other path. I was so fortunate to right, meet the right people at the right time. I've never seen myself as an experienced academic. I've never seen, and, and somebody who lives a good life, I've never seen myself as somebody who made it myself. Mm-hmm. In other words, it was the right investment in me from others, emotional uh, investment, if you like, um, that was so significant to me. Mm-hmm. That's what we need to have as the major guiding principle in those communities where we're seeing the, 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 the outworkings of, uh, of a political economy 
that puts them really at the bottom of the pile. So what you're saying then is that prison abolition, it's not just something about tearing down the walls of the prison. It's about putting the foundations and the building blocks in society to build up something else, to build up alternatives. I, I think that one of the things, Gillian, that, that, that becomes problematic when we try to have this discussion publicly is people say, oh, there he goes again. Open up the open up the gates. Let them all out. Throw away the key. Everything is fine now. They they're, they're all out and back in. No, it's just a that is a nonsense. I mean, what what that notion of penal abolition is crazy. It's just not it's not viable. But it's also not. I don't think I've ever met a penal abolitionist who would argue that. And remember, penal abolition goes right back to the nineteenth century. It's not something that's new. Mm-hmm. I can give you quotes from every decade from then till now mm-hmm. about the utility of prisons and how we should be looking for community-based alternatives. No, it's a gradual move. So you start with decarceration, you start with the winnable, the the, the winnables, you know. I mean, even the government recognised this a couple of years ago, Tory government, when they said, oh, for all those people who are serving less than three years, we're thinking about moving them back into the community. I mean, and you're going, yeah, well, that's not going to work because you haven't got in the community the necessary uh, structures to be able to deal with that influx of people back into the community. But if you put that in place in the first place, and I don't mean the halfway house homes that we see around our cities where people are just hanging around outside with their hostels, basically. I'm talking about meaningful accommodation with full support, as happens in Scandinavia. If we have that at a, a lesser cost than it costs to to, in, to in, incarcerate people, mm-hmm. if we have that put in place, we don't need to send people to prison in the first place. Rehabilitation can take many forms. Mm-hmm. It can be rehabilitation in terms of housing, in terms of community-based support. But we do need to have the appropriate um, physical apparatus as well as commitment in terms of jobs and employment, etc., of people who have expertise to be able to deal with people with complex problems. So if we if we create that as the first stage, that means we're starting to decarcerate. We're starting to lessen the numbers. And gradually that can build to a situation where we're not just talking about very short-term prisoners, we're talking about medium-term prisoners. And I know people listening to this are going to ask one big question. Well, what do you do about the really bad person, the person who's committed dreadful crime? You can't just rehabilitate them. They're beyond rehabilitation. You can't let them back into society. Well, sadly, an abolitionist doesn't mean that every single form of incarceration is done away with. Sadly, there will be people who, for their own safety as well as the safety of others, cannot be released into society. But my argument is that that makes up these worst case um, these worst case examples mm-hmm. make up a very, very small, infinitesimally small number of the penal population. I don't believe that the vast majority of people in prison uh, are beyond help and support and life-changing experience. And we've seen that in so many circumstances where the time, the place and the input was correct and right. Mm -hmm. So we have... 
we have this idea of alternatives to custody of decarceration mm. for selective groups that are quite easy for us to imagine. Yeah. So with regards to to poverty, um, the issues of imprisoning women, children, the racialized imprisonment, all of these things are quite easy to demonstrate a penal abolitionist response to. But as you say, we then have this issue about violence in society and how we respond to that. And it might be worthwhile thinking for a minute about the impact of prison on violence. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we have this idea that prison is designed to make communities safer, does using prison as a response to violent offenders actually rehabilitate them, send them out into society in a way that does make communities safer? And what are the roots of violence in society? Do you know what I mean? Well, it's very hard to unpack, yeah. to, to, to answer the roots of violence in society as um, you can't strip away violence and violation in society from the way in which the relations between people over time have developed. So it comes as no surprise to me that the vast amount of violence in our society is directed towards women by men or from adults to children. Uh, I won't have it that smacking a child is not a violent act. I won't have it that the expectation of a woman to do the bidding of a man in a relationship is not a violent act. It's coercion. So it's violence is a continuum from at the softer end of the continuum, smaller acts to the violence and violation at the other end of the continuum. That whole process is societal. It's in our communities. It's always interpreted that it's in us as individuals, that something happened in our inheritance, something happened in our childhood that created us as violent. Violence is all around us. Violence is something that particularly boys growing up are almost encouraged through boisterousness mm -hmm. to cross the line into violence. So if we're going to deal with just that one issue, violence, we have to think about the kind of construction that we have in relation to the class we live in mm -hmm. and the marginalization of class and the desperation of being poor and all of those issues that we've already talked about. We have to look at the gender politics of our society, the dominance of men over women. And of course, it's not absolutely universal, but it's sufficiently high for us to know that over 90% of that violation are acts of men against women rather than women against men. Mm -hmm. So we know all of that history now. We have, we have that well documented. All that research is there for anybody to see. We also know that it's hidden. And so if we're going to deal with that, we have to deal with it by looking for real fundamental changes in the way we construct those relations. To actually say, oh, well, that's the way we are. It's natural that men are more aggressive. They have more testosterone or whatever. They're more aggressive than women. Therefore, they can't control themselves, either control themselves physically or sexually. Mm -hmm. So we've seen that whole issue about the increase in rape. And the, the, the dreadful um, statistics that demonstrate that for most women, 
it's not even an option to report a rape because they know nothing's going to come of it. Mm-hmm. So we, we understand that those ultimate acts of violence are there within our society. So you can't deal with those through imprisonment. You can't deal with those through fining people. They have to be dealt with through the development of a totally different kind of cultural relationship within our, within our communities. And that cultural relationship goes through all aspects of our lives. And I think that to just leave that to chance and then for, I don't want to, I don't want to diss psychology, but for, for psychologists to come along and, 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 and make a comment that all this is in the individual and the individual's lack of um, socialization and all of that, to me, doesn't wash. It's too prevalent for that to be the case. So, you know, from my point of view, we have to look at a real hard, really hard at the kind of society of marginalization, of desperation and oftentimes that we've created in order to deal with, and I'm only talking here about violence. Yeah. So all the other, all, all of the other kinds of, we, we mentioned acquisitive crime before, we mentioned stealing, robbery and so on, uh, and people feeling that that is a way out of their impoverishment, or it's a way of establishing themselves as people with a, 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 a really good, you know, I mean, if you're talking about organised crime, you know, a really good lifestyle, you know. Yeah. And, and that, I always think that, the, that those boundaries are very, very close, you know. I mean, yeah. the people who make their, their empires out of illicit gain and the people who make their empires out of working off the back of you know, like the Amazon, the Amazon uh, example I gave a minute ago, working off the back of their workers, you know, whichever way you look at it, whether it's the side of the legitimate or non-legitimate line, from my point of view, it's, it, it's an expression of inhumanity. So if we go from violence right the way through to acquisitive crime and all the other, the other, the, the, the other issues that we see, they have to be dealt with where they occur. They have to be dealt with in, in the community. They can't be de- dealt with, as has been proven so, for so long now, by criminalization, by harsher rules, harsher legislation, and harsher punishments. Yeah. And I suppose one of the issues with using prison to respond to violence that you've just touched upon is this idea, or is this fact, that prison is only used to respond to the violence of certain populations. So we have huge swathes of social harms that are being enacted by states and by corporations that are not responded to with criminal justice. And then we see that some of the most victimized segments of society, such as marginalized women, are actually the fastest growing group of uh, people who are being incarcerated in society. And so I think it's no accident then that some of the most solidified activism comes from yeah. those communities, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, As absolutely. marginalized women. The, 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 the issue from my point of view is that communities are resilient and marginalized groups always fight back. Historically, we've seen that. And it's no coincidence that uh, one of the strongest um, movements historically uh, have come has come from those who were really under the heel. Um, Women in the late 19th century, as for many centuries before, 
uh, as capitalism developed and became more advanced, were really under the heel. And the first wave of feminism, votes for women, all that went with that, the second wave of feminism that had to come about uh, directly as a consequence of women being sent back into the factories after the war, having come out um, and supported the war effort, through to the third wave of feminism, which is where we have been more recently, all demonstrate very clearly that very strong and brave women as individuals will not uh, be put down, will not be marginalised by the structures um, that are, for no better phrase, I can't think of another phrase, that are misogynist. Mm. You know, it's misogyny isn't just an act of an individual against the, against another individual. Misogyny is something that embricates the way in which our society operates. And people might think that that's too harsh a word. Well, there isn't a word that is parallel to racist or parallel to classist. Misogynist is it. And if women in that situation are systemically marginalized, if they are systemically um, put down and used and abused, and we've seen that in the in the whole Harvey Weinstein affair, but you know, and they are people of some wealth and some income, you know, of some status. And if we see that being played out right across the societies in, in which we live, the way in which misogyny has become institutionalized into everyday life, mm -hmm. that to me is one of the most significant and important elements that underlies the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. The Me Too movement isn't just a movement, it's the modern movement of the suffragette movement. Mm -hmm. It's saying we have had, you know, we have had enough, we're not prepared to take any more. And so we have all of these movements then resisting the carceral state, such as critical resistance in America, Flat Out and Sisters Inside in Australia, that are driven by criminalised women resisting the carceral state. And so do you think that we have something to be hopeful about with regards to activism, firstly, and second, do you think that change to the penal state will ever come from above or is it something that we have to push for from below? I think I'll take that the other way around. I think that from my perspective, the real change in society always comes from below. Um, the way in which our society works, particularly societies of privilege, is that those who have power, real power, economic power and thereby connect very strongly into states and political power, that that dependency of the political economy, if you like, creates the dynamics in which we have the school to prison pipeline, creates the dynamics of marginal economic marginalization, creates poverty and lives off it. Mm -hmm. In other words, uh, if you look historically, the whole principle of the welfare state was a dual state, a state that worked to keep people above the poverty line as much as possible, to give people what I believe is one of the best systems in the world of healthcare, mm -hmm. um, to give people appropriate, but not always good, educational school experience, that that kind of optimism of supporting working class communities by bringing them up to 
bringing them up to being a compliant and appropriate workforce, out of which a few could rise, like myself, and go into higher education and jobs and whatever. Mm -hmm. But basically, it was a SOP mm -hmm. to, to, to ensure that there was a compliant, strongly, uh, strongly supported in welfare terms and education terms class that was fit for work. Mm -hmm. But it never dented for one second the real seat of economic power. The differential now in our societies between that band that own and control the means of production mm -hmm. and those who are excluded has never been greater. The wealth, the wealth differential has never been greater. While we have food banks in our, in our cities, the wealth differential has never been greater. So any movement that is going to make a difference has got to come from the bottom. Mm -hmm. And yet again, um, the women's movement, more broad than the feminist movement, because not all women in the women's movement would necessarily say or carry a banner saying, I am a feminist, mm -hmm. you know, although they would certainly identify with women's equality. They would certainly identify with challenging violence against women. They certainly would identify with appropriate, supported childcare because they still carry the main responsibility mm -hmm. for childcare. And so in that situation, um, that movement that has come from below, that movement that has come out of their adversity of saying, I'm in this. Now, me too is I'm in this. Mm -hmm. This is me, mm -hmm. you know. That, that woman who was raped in a relationship where she knew the man, that could have been me. Mm. Not the stranger danger rape, mm -hmm. but the, that could have been her too. Mm -hmm. But the relationship where women have actually directly experienced violation and violence in their relationships, that has been so significant in creating a dynamic where that questioning will move that debate forward and has moved that debate forward. It will be resisted strongly. Of course it will. Power never, ever gives up its apparatus easily. Mm -hmm. So you have that on one hand, but you also see that in the Black Lives Matter movement, which is not just simply and solely about women's experiences. Yeah. It's about an oppressed minority within communities where they are the majority and that that issue of black lives matter has been so strong uh, not just in the united states but also in 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 england mm -hmm. where those black men and women who've died in custody or died at the hands of the police their families have organized and their families have created a dynamic made films you know have publicized the full extent of the oppression that those communities feel. That's where change will come. At the end of the day, from my point of view, nothing, very little, comes from above. The benevolence of those in power is all it is. Mm -hmm. It's benevolence. It's giving you something. Mm -hmm. It's a handout, however elaborate that might be. 
But real change, real um, opposition always comes from below. This is the concept of quiet revolution. A revolution doesn't have to be people storming um, the Bastille. You know, uh, a revolution comes through the struggles of people who are oppressed to say enough is enough. Mm -hmm. This is not going to continue in my name. Mm -hmm. It'd be the phrase they would use. And that to me is where as critical analysts mm -hmm. and critical criminologists, we have to support that. Yeah. Part of our agenda is to understand that critique and broader structural relations within our society, those relations of power, of economics, those relations of ideology mm -hmm. are to be challenged mm -hmm. by the work we do yeah. and not be accepting uh, that this is the criminal justice system and this is how it works and now we're going to study it. Yeah. We have to say, why is this the criminal justice system? Why do we define crime in that way? Why do we, as you put it a minute ago, why do we um, have differential laws, yeah. laws for, the, for, 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 for those who, or, or differentially applied laws, mm -hmm. those for the wealthy, those for the, the poor? Mm -hmm. And I think that's only through getting into that, that that's what the word critical means. Mm -hmm. It means unpacking the relations, the structural relations of class, of race, of gender, of sexuality in the North of Ireland, of sectarianism. That's how we begin to understand um, how laws are uh, developed, how they are passed, how they are differentially policed or differentially applied, and then how our courts respond differentially also. The structural relations that we see in wider society that marginalise people are the same structural relations that operate in policing, in our courts and in our prisons. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So resistance comes from below and as critical researchers we have an obligation to support that resistance and to participate in challenging oppression. I think that's a pretty good place to leave it. Thank you so much, Phil, for coming to talk to us today. Thank you for having me in. And um, it's been a, a pleasure to be able to sit here and have a, a wee rant on a Friday morning. Yep. Here's the Friday morning rants. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. You have been listening to Criminology Matters. I'm Gillian, and you can catch the other episodes in our series on blogpod.org, where all our show notes are available.